Amen. Good morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Hot mic. You pull me down a little bit. Very good. Thanks. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians today. So if you get a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to 1 Corinthians 7. We really are going to be in 1 Corinthians. Yes, we're going to be all over, but we're definitely going to be there thinking about how to both finish this series, what's Palm Sunday, and getting ready for Easter. So we'll see if we can hit all three of those goals in 1 Corinthians 7. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those verses on the screen, or we'd love to give you a copy of the Scriptures on your way out. So, in this series, we've been talking about what a man is, what a woman is, what love is biblically. And we've been talking about all kinds of other stuff that kind of go around those topics culturally. Homosexuality, transsexuality. Thinking about the way that we present the gospel in a contested environment. And one thing we've missed or haven't talked about yet is something that a lot of people are, are in. It's their stage of life, which is singleness. And yet, I don't just want to think about singleness. I want to think about it the way that the Bible talks about it. And the way the Bible talks about it, it paints with a much broader brush than just people who are currently single. It talks about everybody in the way that all of us should be thinking about our relationships, and where they're headed, what's going on. Now, if you are just talking about singleness, it is a very difficult thing in this world to figure out. Once upon a time, you know, they talk about how you lived in your village and there was like seven options and you would try to find which one of those would have you. And of the ones that would have you, like which one could you maybe get to that was maybe a little better than the others? And you found your spouse and that was it. And then you got married and you were good to go. And if, if you didn't have as many options, you also didn't have as high expectations or maybe different expectations for what marriage would be. Now you can get on an app and you got like three and a half billion possibilities. And how do you decide? How would you ever decide? I know for Rachel and I, this is not very romantic maybe. But when we were dating, she's sitting right here, when we were dating and, and even as we were getting engaged and engaged, we would talk about that and say like, babe, you're the only one for me out of like 100,000 people I probably could have married. Doesn't sound romantic, but it kind of is true though. Like you could probably marry like 100,000 people. Out of three and a half billion, a hundred thousand is saying she's pretty impressive. Now, on this side of our marriage, uh, yeah, she's the only one for me. But we were both pretty heads up about the fact that, like, yeah, I mean, you can make a lot of stuff work. Marriage is not supposed to be this one perfect person. That's a little bit Disney Channel. It's more a, a, a partnership in the scriptures where God is putting together two people and you work together for something else. You're not just looking at each other and saying, is this the perfect person that's going to crown my life with glory where everyone around me will be so impressed with me and the kind of person I could marry? Now, I got all that also, but that's not what it's for. No, again, that's not super romantic, but it's true if you can see it the way God sees it. And if you do, and maybe this is comforting for people that are, you know, out there in the midst of the rough and tumble dating world, you know, you don't have to find just one person. You only have to find one person, but it's one out of, you know, kind of a big group. 
if what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 is true. So let's read it. 1 Corinthians 7, starting verse 29. We're going to work our way down. Paul was one of Jesus's um, enemies who became a follower. He actually met the Christ after his resurrection. He becomes a preacher of the gospel. He goes around to all these different towns and becomes uh, a preacher to the Jews for a minute, and then he goes to the Gentiles in these different cities. And he helped to lead this church in Corinth, then leaves and writes letters back to them, and they've got all kinds of problems. They've got big problems when it comes to understanding sexuality. And so he addresses them about marriage in a couple different places. And then he comes to this point in verse 29 where he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, here's a great place where you need to read verses in context. You can't just throw that one out and say, hey, those who have wives live as though they had none. Vegas, um, you have to read the context. Verse 30, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. What's he saying? He is saying, yes, if you're single or single again, don't despair. But he's also saying, and I think this is the broader message here, he's saying, what is marriage really? It's actually just a, a symbol of something greater. Something greater that whether you are single or married, you can have. You may already have. And one day will fully have in Christ. If we are supposed to be image bearers, if there's something about us that's supposed to reflect who God is in the same way marriage is supposed to reflect something greater than what it actually shows the world to be. It is a pretty wrapper on something that's underneath, something that's fuller, something that's satisfying in a way marriage never can be. One day, we're going to open up that wrapper. We're going to throw away the wrapper and have what is the real of marriage. I think part of the problem with either marriages or people thinking about or leaving marriages is that we see them the way that the world sees them. I think the world puts all of this pressure on this one relationship to be the defining place where you know who you are and you know why you're happy. The Bible calls that idolatry. 
Instead, the Bible points to something greater, something better, something we're not at yet. Our thing is just, you know, Midville Cottonwood Heights. And as we moved into the Cottonwood Heights home yesterday, we had the moment where we took the kids back to the Midville home yesterday and kind of walked through it to make sure we didn't, you know, forget anything. And we finished walking through it, and they're sad. And we all sit down in the living room. We left some furniture behind, so we sat, they all sat on this little bench, and we were talking about favorite memories, about stuff that had happened in that home. When we moved into that home, we only had two kids, and they were very, very young. I remember in our kitchen, we got a little picture of it, so maybe that's why I remember it more than actually the memory, but little Catherine was in a diaper, big old chubby legs, <laughs> and she was on the kitchen floor, and it was orange linoleum. We hadn't gotten to it yet. Orange linoleum. I don't know why that was even a product that was sold, but it was orange <laughs> linoleum. And we walked in, and she had quinoa, and it had just was everywhere. I don't even know where she got it. We don't eat quinoa. I don't know why it was in the home or what was going on, but it was just everywhere. And she looks at us with this smile of like, what could be wrong? <laughs> a thousand, thousand times just like that happened in that home over the last six years. We got to see Hope Church planted. It was amazing. And now we're just walking away from it. And you have that sentimentality. Maybe you don't. I get really sentimental about this stuff. Same thing where Apple, I don't know if you have Apple devices, but if you have pictures on your Apple phone, they'll send you these little pre-made videos every now and again of like your trip to McDonald's in June of 20-whatever. <laughs> and it'll just be the music and the slow pan of, you know, one thing to the next, to the happy meal and the slide. And then, you know, you remember you were in this car at that time. Oh, my goodness, you know, in the stroller. And you just memories, you know? And the thing that God has kind of taught me in the midst of those moments, and he's had to teach me, I've had to find something because I do get so emotional about it. And it's what I could share with the kids yesterday. In those moments, you're, you're, you're feel, you feel something really warm and good because it was a good memory, but you also feel something sad. You're, you're mourning. Because it's gone. It's in the past, right? But the Scripture never intends for us to look back as though what had happened was this great and perfect moment that will never be had again. Just like you can't look at your relationships now and think that these relationships, this is the only real and good thing in the world. And I have to have these relationships and they have to be exceptional relationships because they're the only place where the good is. And I could tell the girls yesterday what I've been telling myself, what I'm telling you is that God is absolutely preaching on almost every page of Scripture that the good things that are, are just hints. They're just vague previews. They're through a glass darkly, a, a, a sooty fingerprint messed up, uh, stuff all over it mirror, and you can only barely vaguely see the reflection of the thing that will be one day. 
that if you compare what every heartwarming, beautiful moment you've ever had, they only are the beginning, the preview, the, the first smell, not even taste, the first smell of the eventual banquet, of the absolute blow your mind out of the water, incredible party that is to come with him one day. That's what marriage is pointing to. If you can actually see that, then it doesn't matter if you're married or single. You're going to push. You're going to do like Paul said there where he said, act as though you're not married. Act as though you're not mourning. Act as though you're not rejoicing. Act as though you're not in the marketplace wheeling and dealing 70 hours a week. Live for the kingdom. No truly good thing you've ever experienced is ever really gone. It's all going to be where you're going. No truly good experience that you've missed out on. There's no judgment at Hope Church. I don't know what your life has been like. Maybe you are looking back on a life that you say to yourself, man, I really missed the boat. I hope they don't ask me too many questions about my past because I don't want to tell them about the broken relationships that I've had. No truly good thing that you feel like you've missed will ever really be withheld. Heaven is coming. Jesus has promised that he's gone to prepare a place for us. The posture of the Christian is not somebody who makes a perfect life and then reviews their perfect life and shows off to the world their perfect life. The posture of the Christian is leaning forward, pushing towards the day when you'll be with him forever. That's why the scripture ends with the verses. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. And then John says, for the whole church, for all the ages, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then, you know, he's a pastor. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, amen. He can't just finish with the... But come, Lord Jesus. The appointed time has grown very short. You do not lose anything good by investing in the coming kingdom. And if you are somebody who is presently single, you have an unparalleled opportunity to work for the kingdom. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul is actually having to defend his ministry from this church that he, he's been leading it's the Apostle Paul. So <laughs> if you're a church that's mad at your pastor and he's the Apostle Paul, like what chance do we have at Hope Church? But the, the, they're upset with him. They're, they're accusing him. And he's having to defend himself and defend his right to be their pastor, their leader. Apostle. I mean, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? That's Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Some of the accusations against Paul were that because he would work and do this tent-making deal so that they didn't have to support him financially. These other guys, these super apostles, as Paul kind of makes fun of them, 
will come through and say, what kind of guy is this? What kind of pastor is this? He can't even, he's not even willing to, to receive from you. He doesn't even trust his own ability to teach and to, and to have something that's worth paying for. They were accusing him, my tail off, day and night, so that I can preach the gospel to you without you having to financially help me out. I'm going to care for you rather than you caring for me. We're going to do it so full, full tilt is, is a name of a disc golf tilt. Full tilt, full steam ahead that I'm not even going to do it with a, a, a believing wife that's going to come with me. Another person that you would have to support and care for. I'm going to do it as a single guy. So I have that much more time, that much more focus that I can give towards you. Now, he goes on to include the apostles, the brothers of our Lord, and Peter as people who did bring along believing wives. It's okay to be married and be in ministry. He does defend biblically going to Moses and looking at places where people are supported by the people that they lead. It's okay that your giving helps to support me and Rachel. That's okay. But well done to the men at Hope Church who serve faithfully here and also go and work through the week at other jobs so that they can do that and be less of a constraint on you. Why do they do that? Because the kingdom has that much value. There's so much to be done for the kingdom that they're willing to give everything for this. Paul's willing to give everything for this. Even his relationship possibilities, that he could go out and find a wife and have comfort at home with a wife. Can you imagine something in your world that's eating up time, that's eating up energy, that's dividing your attention from being single-minded and focused on the kingdom? Paul identified everything that could possibly be on that list and eliminated them. Do you have anything that you could find that you could eliminate so that you would have more time and more energy for the gospel, for the kingdom, for your brothers and sisters that are here? Jesus, Paul's not alone in preaching this. Jesus is preaching about how we have to have that single-minded focus. He says in Mark 13, concerning that day, that hour, the appointed time that's grown very short, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. You don't know when the time's going to come. It's like a man who goes on a journey, and when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper, hey, Stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he should come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. If you're married, have an absolute full steam ahead kingdom mindset such that it's almost like you're not. If you're single, you have the unparalleled opportunity of an even greater focus of that kingdom, of that work to see people know this Jesus. No matter your state of life, no matter your relationship status, 
Stay awake. Paul sums it up so perfectly. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. If that's true, maybe there's a part of you right now that's saying, yes, let's do it. Show me what that means. And maybe that's me being wildly optimistic to think that some of you are saying that. But I hope that some of you are saying that. I know, though, that there's others of you that are saying, sure, but you already feel so tired. You've taken on big responsibilities. You've gone after big kingdom goals. And right now you're saying yes, but you're also feeling absolutely exhausted. I felt that uh, this week several times as I've tried to do this move stuff and then also knock out the stuff I need to do for hope and everything that God's given me to work on. And you look forward to trying to like increase that speed and increase the volume of that kingdom work. And one of the biggest pieces that makes me slow down and, and, and be afraid of that is just because I feel so tired. But the scripture speaks to that as well. In Isaiah 40, 30 and 31, it's a very famous passage. It says, even youths faint and be, and shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Why? You read a promise like that, and it's very exciting because you think, okay, yes, do that, Lord. Make that happen. How? Why? What actually makes that work so that I'm not exhausted and I do actually have renewed strength and I mount up on wings like eagles and run without being weary? How, Father? Well, Palm Sunday. Now, if you don't know about Palm Sunday, David gave a brief description of it. But in the scriptures, there's four books that are called the Gospels. They tell about the life and ministry of Jesus. In those Gospels, like half of each one is about the last couple of days or weeks right before, and then the couple of days and weeks right after, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So we got a lot of facts about what's called Holy Week, which is the week preceding Jesus' death on the cross, starting with what we call today Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Throughout the life of Jesus, he's been trading blows, trading punches with the Pharisees, the guys that are leading in Jerusalem. And then there's a point in his ministry where he sets himself like a flint to work his way towards Jerusalem. And then he's actually ready to enter Jerusalem on what he knows is a death march headed straight for the cross. And on this day, thousands of years ago, Jesus saddled up on a donkey. Now, <laughs> that doesn't sound real impressive. I don't know what you know about donkeys. They're odd-looking things. Chesterton's got a hilarious poem about them, specifically about this moment. But he mounts up on a donkey specifically because of prophecy from Zechariah and because of David, the king, who is known to have ridden on donkeys, to ride in on donkeys, the sure-footed donkey. Jesus in that moment saying, I am this king 
come to conquer. If you go read Zechariah 9 today, you'll see the prophecy that it's talking about. And it is a very military prophecy. It's talking about how he's going to come in and he's going to start swinging punches and be victor, be conqueror over the enemies of God. He gets on this donkey and the people are going nuts because they know about the prophecy and they know about this Jesus guy and they're thinking, this is it. He's going to go conquer Rome. We're going to now be in charge of the world. The gold that's going to flow into Israel is going to be so great, the silver is going to be worthless. It's going to be like Solomon's times, David's times, all over again. So they start laying down these palm branches, very symbolic of victory and peace. And and they cut them and they laid them down in the road so that the donkey walks over these palm branches and they're, they're waving these palm branches and they're laying their coats on the road as well. Celebrating this Jesus that's come. Little do we know that the same voices that are screaming out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The ones who are crying out and the, the Pharisees tell Jesus, hey, tell them to stop saying that about you. And Jesus says to those Pharisees, if they didn't say it, the rocks would cry out. Those same voices, seven days later, would be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. This this Jesus that's come, this Jesus that enters Jerusalem, he comes in not to destroy Rome, but to destroy death. He's come to bring victory and peace, to lay out for us a kingdom agenda, bringing this same great news to all the world, not because he knows we're great and we're going to do great and we're going to speak greatly, but because he knows that we're broken and he knows that we're sinful and he knows that we need his grace. That's why as we're singing, we're singing about those who believe and are forgiven because they believe. Listen, today, I hope that you gain a little bit greater kingdom motivation to get out there and tell people about this Jesus. Invite them to Easter to think about the resurrection. Think about how you can serve people in order to earn the right to invite them to things like Easter. I hope. But if you screw up the strength and the energy to go and do it without understanding the why, without having your eyes on him who was hung on a cross in order to give you the forgiveness that you need for your sin, to make the way for us to be brought into that kingdom that everything in Scripture is barreling towards, man, I, I, I think you've missed it. If you're like me and you're feeling just exhausted then, like me, you need to repent and come back to the one who loves you and has forgiven you and has cleaned you. Put down your pride. Put down that part of you that wants to increase as you see him increase and instead decrease as he increases and just receive from him. The Lord shall renew their strength. Easter is coming. The resurrection is coming. The life is coming. Do you rejoice at that? Are you overflowing with the vision of that?
Oh, brothers and sisters, if so, commit right now to grabbing hold of him, receiving that strength from him, and getting to work for him, for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you would have us be on fire with the absolute just clarity of vision that only your spirit can give of, of the world as it should be. Jesus always praying that your name would be hallowed, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then your people supposed to be praying, Lord, that you would deliver us from temptation. Father, we're so tempted to walk away from that kingdom mindset, that kingdom vision, that kingdom mission. Today, Lord, would you refocus us? Not with a lash, just forcing us to work harder and we look up with all of the the fatigue, Father, but would you, would you call us up? Would you th- help us to think, lift our eyes up and think of the cross and the Christ who died for us so that you provide the strength that we need. You provide the message that we speak. Lord. Pray that you would do this, Lord, for your glory and our good. In your holy name we pray. Amen.